And I think what COVID has done, especially making us all stuck at home, it's made us think, if I'm going to do it, I ought to get on and do it now. It's the closest I got to feeling like I was going to die. I mean that. I'm Peter. And I'm Felice. Welcome to our travel podcast. We're specialist travel writers and we've spent half a lifetime exploring every corner of the world. So we want to share with you some of our extraordinary experiences and the amazing people we've met along the way. This week we're talking about time and about travel. How to spend our leisure time in this strange uncharted Covid world. Now more than ever we worry about work, we worry about relationships, about the quality of the food and drink that we put in our bodies, but we remain startlingly ignorant about how to spend the most precious commodity of all that we have, time. We're delighted to have on the show James Wallman, best-selling author of Time and How to Spend It. James is a journalist and futurist who says that all the scientific data points to the need to reboot our daily lives and rethink our leisure time. And he's devised what he calls stories a simple seven-point checklist that tells us how to do it. James has teamed up with our other guest today, Gavin Copus, Business Development Director of Air Charter Service, a worldwide private aviation operator. Together, they have created Time Well Spent, a series of life-enhancing holidays. The first of these, Journey to the End of the World, takes you to South America. If I could begin with you, Gavin, Tell us about Air Charter Service and what it does. Absolutely, of course. We started in 1990 and we've grown exponentially um, throughout the years. And last year obviously was a was a very bad year for the travel industry, but it was a particularly good year for charter, whether that be cargo charter or private jet charter. And uh, so the company's sort of grown now to 1.2 billion dollar turnover. So we're a, a a growing company in a pandemic and a growing company in times of turmoil really, because people turn to aviation to solve problems, whether it's evacuating from typhoons or from nuclear disasters, or whether it's uh, sending aid into to help famine or to help uh, disaster relief. And there's something going on in the world, we're involved. And at the moment, we're, we're very involved in sports charters because sports teams are traveling around in bubbles. So they're using charter aircraft. And so the leisure market is increasingly using private jets now because uh, it's, it's deemed to be COVID safe. Uh, if you like, but it's also allowing people to get around and doing the things they want to do. So if they want to go skiing, for example, if the ski destination is a long way away and it's quite remote, the private jet will help them get there as opposed to being restricted to where the scheduled flights are going. Now, let's bring in our other guest today, James Warman. Now, James, your latest book's called Time and How to Spend It. How does that relate to travel? The thing is, whether you think about leisure time, work time, travel time, the most precious resource there is on the planet is the time of individual humans. And whether you're 12 or 20 or 30 or 40 or wherever you are in your life, it's going to come to an end at some point. And I think one of the things that COVID has done, and I've heard this from, wow, all sorts of people, it's made us realize, remind us of the preciousness of our existence. Too many people, I think, have kind of gone, oh, I'll do that some other time. I'll, 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 you know, that'll come around. And I think what COVID has done, especially making us all stuck at home, it's made us think, if I'm going to do it, I ought to get on and do it now. 
I ought to use my time well because this is going to come to a close. Just what Gavin was mentioning there and just thinking of you guys as ski experts and the idea that you can get where you want to go to by private jet. I just instantly think of the Altiport at Courchevel. It would be my dream to land in that Altiport. And I don't think you need to be Russian to ski in Courchevel. I was there before the Russians. It is, you know, the couloirs, the, the skiing there is magnificent. But I think that's the point. And that's that's one of the reasons why Gavin and I worked on this, this, this work for ACS and putting together these itineraries was that these guys do time machines. They save you time. They get you, you, you know, enable you to do other things. And there's a fit with the work that I've done. My first book, Stuffocation, was about the big trend away from materialism as the dominant value system in our society to experientialism. Instead of looking for happiness, identity, and status in things, in being the person who wins because you've got the biggest car and the most toys, it's the person who has the most stories and the most interesting stories. And we get status through experiences and the stories that come with those instead. And that was really about how to spend money, not stuff, experiences. And the next book, Time and How to Spend It, which the FT named a book of the year in 2019, the year it came out. Just would like to mention that because it makes my mum proud. Uh, and my dad, who actually reads the, the FT. That's that goes goes beyond. So the first one is not stuff experiences. And the next one says, what kind of experiences? Because I've been interviewed many times on TV, on radio, and people would say to me, okay, you're saying spend on experiences. What kind of experiences? And truth be told, I don't know the answer. I love skiing. My wife, so-so. She likes the social aspect of skiing. She likes the ice bars. But I wanted to have an answer. So I do what I've always done as a researcher is I go find people cleverer than me at places like Oxford and Cambridge and Stanford and MIT and Tokyo University and the London School of Economics and MIT, NYU, etc. And I talk to them, find out the research they've done and try and translate that into something practical that a person can use to get more from their time. So how did you two get together? I mean, how did you meet or think up the idea of doing this together? We were introduced by some people on an event I was running, a company called Finn Partners. We were originally introduced uh, a friend of mine called Debbie, who lives actually around the corner from me. And we, during COVID, would sometimes walk our dogs together at a healthy distance. And uh, she was telling me about what these guys did in terms of private aviation, what it does for your time. Obviously, well, not obviously, but she's a fan of my work and we talk about how to spend time. And uh, I've talked to her, the, her team about how they can spend their time better, etc. And we thought there was a fit. She introduced me to uh, Gavin and his team. And well, Gavin, you can comment on this. I think it's been a huge amount of fun working together because because we, we're similar enough, but different enough to kind of complement each other to kind of go, actually, Gavin, I, I would say this is your question. It's like, I love your ideas, James. How does that, what does that mean for what we do? And I was also yeah. like, oh, I like what you do. How does that, how does it complement each other? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's true because obviously from a, from a private jet point of view, we have to be very practical. To, to a degree. And there's there's safety concerns, there's performance concerns, there's time concerns, there's crew duty limitation concerns, a lot of boring stuff to most people. But for us, it's, it's the bread and butter of what we do. And with James and his team, he would come up with an itinerary and it would be the, the wish list that has been almost like the dream list. And we'd sit there and go, wow, yeah, that's amazing. But how can you do that? And then that's when we would take away that the problem of doing it with commercial flights, because it, it's 100% impossible and then see how we can make it possible by using the private jet 
Can I jump in? One of the funny things was when I talked to Gavin and we were looking at the brief, I said to them, okay, so are there specific airfields that we should think about? Is, is there a particular destination? And this, guys, was one of the worst briefs I've ever had because he said, no, it's anywhere. We, we will make it work. And if you can imagine when someone says to you, the world, that's not a brief. <laughs> I mean, it is a brief, but it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't help. When I'm trying to explain to my researchers okay, who are, you know, some some great travel writers, actually, who I got involved with this. I, I was unable to give them a brief apart from go anywhere, but let's make it really good use of time and we can play. Thank you, Gavin. It was a very difficult brief, but it, it turned into this kind of to and fro. The first of these journeys is called Journey to the End of the World. Tell us about it. Where does it involve going to? How much can you pack into a short amount of time? Because one of the magical things that you get when you fly by private aviation, of course, is you set your own agenda. So then it was kind of like, okay, so we can save time. But I think this is really important. It's not just about saving time. It's about creating extra special moments. The uh, sixth rule of the seven rules that you should think about when spending your time is extraordinary. The magic of extraordinary moments, and you can design these in particular ways, is they create the memories that give you... Well, they talk about social capital and it actually will help you live longer because you will have those memories that, that enrich your life. And it gives you it almost works the same way as, as money in the bank. Great stories, great memories work in a similar way to money in the bank. The trip that we've designed and it took, I mean, what do you think, Gavin, six weeks? Eight weeks yeah. of toing and froing. I mean, this is once weeks, definitely. This is once yeah. we decided on the destinations. Mm. The trip begins in Santiago in Chile. And although I feel awkward saying Chile, talking to uh, British people, I was talking to a friend the other day in the States and he said Chile. So I'm going to stay with it. Okay. <laughs> they don't say Chile over there. They say Chile. He's opening an office in Santiago, this friend of mine. And so it starts in Santiago in Chile. And we start with, I think something quite simple and maybe obvious, but we start with the idea of a really fabulous lunch in a rooftop restaurant because the views are spectacular. And the idea is that we'd meet with a sociologist slash alpinist who would come and talk to the people about this thing they're about to go and travel along because the Andes is the central spine, of course, of Latin America. And it's the central spine of the trip that we've designed. So they'd get a sense. They get a sense of here's the story. You're starting on the journey here. And then we'd go from there to Kalama. And this is one of the wonderful things. If you fly by commercial jet, you just fly into this place, Kalama. If you fly by private aviation, we can go a slightly different way in and you get to see the largest open copper mine in the world. I mean, it's an aberration, but it's also something amazing to see. And I think we we didn't push this too much in terms of the structure, but thinking about the, the end of the world is a play on the fact that we end up in Ushuaia, the town at the end of the world. And then we go to the Atacama Desert. Beginnings are very important. So when we arrive there, instead of going straight to the hotel, the first place we go to is the, is it the desert of, of, of Mars? But I remember the colors. I remember the colors in the pictures and the way you arrive and you go to this place because we're going to have lunch and then we're going to arrive there at kind of late afternoon, early evening as the sun is setting. So the colors are changing in the desert and you get these purples mm. and oranges and reds and it's a really magical time. So that's important. And then we stay there and it is one of the great places in the world for astro tourism, which is a really fancy way of saying looking at stars. It's certainly the most remarkable place. When I was 19 years old, I, I walked across the Atacama Desert because I didn't actually know what yellow on the map meant. I, <laughs> and I lived to tell the tale. Don't know how I did, but I did. Wow. Almost no water and... Uh, it was a very strange experience. But I remember then one of my great memories of that was, was lying in my sleeping bag at night looking up 
and there was no artificial light within maybe 500 miles of where I was, you know. Mm -hmm. So you have absolute and complete, this amazing view of the stars. And it, it to me, it's one of the most magical places on Earth. The other, my other memory, that was the cold, that the desert, when you're yes. lying there in your sleeping bag at six in the morning, and watching the sun just beginning to come up, praying it would come up quicker than it is because <laughs> it's so cold. And then, of course, you get that in 10 minutes, you're out of that sleeping bag and you're boiling again <laughs> and still thirsty. <laughs> still first but but certainly, it's one of the most remarkable remote places I've ever been to, and uh, mm. I would put it in my in my my top ten list of places in the world which are extraordinary natural phenomenon. Fantastic! Amazing. Oh, you make me feel even happier that we put that in right at the beginning. Beginnings are very important. There's something I call it the B rules. You may have heard of something called the peak end rules, but um, it's something that, that um, psychologists have discovered. It turns out the beginnings, the extremes, and the endings stay in our memories much more than other elements of any kind of trip so how you design the beginning and how you design the ending and making sure that there are peaks through the trip is super important so the beginning was very important for us to design properly so gavin where do you go from there um so from there we actually go direct to easter island and this is where the private jet element comes in to uh, to its uh, its best really because you don't have to go back down to santiago and connect overnight and then carry on to Easter Island. We just go straight to Easter Island from Kalama. And we're able to choose the time of day we want to go. So we're going, I believe, from memory, about 10 a.m. So we're, we're having a, an experience in the morning and going to the airport, getting on the plane about 9, 10 o'clock, flying across to Easter Island directly. Actually, sorry, four and a half, five hours uh, flight time. But you get back two hours with the time difference. So you're arriving in the afternoon and then you've got all afternoon and evening to then enjoy Easter Island. And we're then going to leave the next morning. Because I think the thing about like Easter Island now, you know, remote places are wonderful and it is, is, is magical for that. But the thing that's there is those moai. That's the thing to see. So the magic is we'd see them in the afternoon. There's one particular place where they, it's amazing to see them in the morning at dawn. And then we'd have breakfast and go. So it's, again, coming back to this idea of extraordinary moments. Let's not eke the trip to Easter Island beyond what it should be. Go there, see the thing, move on for more spectacular stuff. James, will you be accompanying these trips? I am hoping so. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been anywhere. And, and same as you, I've, travel has been a very large part of my life. I, I miss it. But yes, I'm hoping so. But it's not necessary for that to happen, sadly. But actually, the same as you, Peter and Felice. Um, and I think what Gavin was saying there about how he'd been planning his trip, but then he was planning for other people. Once you enjoy travel, the vicarious joy of organizing someone else's trip when you're writing a travel article, I, I just find it, you know, so much fun. And so you're know, thinking about these other places. Obviously, it's best when you actually get to go there. But the thrill of other people and setting it up and designing it for other people is yeah, it's quite powerful, too. Surprisingly powerful. Mm. Gavin, is there a danger here that it's all going to be a bit rushed, that you can, you can see Easter Island, you see the statues, you go to bed, you get up, you get on a plane again? Is that all... A part of the experience, a good idea to be had to pack in so much in what is a two-week program. Yeah, I, I think I think so, and and really because time is something that uh, high net worths who are able to afford this sort of trip don't have much of. So they're able to do this two-week trip in the time it would probably take normally uh, at least a month, maybe six weeks. And and a lot of that time is spent, as I mentioned, connecting through airports like Santiago or spending a night in a hotel that you don't want to really want to be in and seeing things that are important 
is where the memory comes. And that's part of what James is saying. You, your memory of this trip will be so far reaching. You won't realize it was only two weeks. You'll look back on it and it could have been your memory. It could have been two months even because you've crammed and experienced so much. If you needed the rest time and you needed the downtime, it's there. It's just not a, an itinerary that we're saying has to be two weeks. So if somebody said, to be honest, I want to have two nights in Easter Island because I actually want to take it in and I actually want to have a little bit of downtime. That's fine. We just extend it out by a day. These itineraries are very much uh, personal and bespoke. It's giving uh, the, the customer and the, the actual passengers an idea of what's possible. And of course, they can do it exactly. But if they feel they need a little bit more time somewhere, that's absolutely fine. Can I jump in with a few comments on this? Because if that's okay, I am not pro tick box tourism at all. I think that denigrates the magic of going places. I'm part of something called the Transformational Travel Council. And there was a line from a colleague who's involved with this who says, one of the lies of travel is that people go so far to feel so little. And, and this trip, the, the way we've designed this, I think, Gavin, your point there, is to illustrate what is possible at the same time. Although... From a sort of, if you just look at it, it looks like there's a lot going on. We have also deliberately designed into each part of the trip the downtime that's required. So, in each of the stages, so we do go, we've not gone through the whole trip because it's there's lots of different episodes. And if you think about the way that a TV show works, you have a, each episode is the full story. It's not like a movie. And we've designed each part when it's in San Pedro de Atacama, Easter Island. After Easter Island, what's the next stop? Basically, we leave there and again, we go direct to our destination as opposed to going back via Santiago because Santiago, Easter Island is the only commercial route available. And uh, in this particular itinerary, we've chosen the, the volcano. And uh, and that's where we then experience the the, the volcano and uh, river rafting. And it's it's an experienced destination. I don't know if you've, you've been to Pucon before, but it's you can do so many different activities. And in this particular itinerary, we've chosen the, the volcano. James, I know you're very interested in uh, the idea of spending as much time outside as possible, uh, hiking or climbing or walking or skiing or whatever, because that enhances happiness, you feel. And therefore, in this case, this is uh, that part of it. You're going to see a, a live volcano and you're going to walk up to it, right? Yeah, just to be really clear, it's not that I feel that being outside makes us happy, it's the data makes us happy. And that's one of the, although I often present these things in that way, so forgive me if I've done that, it's it's all backed up by research, by scientists. So the, the research is very clear. If you want to be happier, spend more time outside. And, and this, I mean, this trip ticks that box so many times in so many different ways. I'm going to flag up something also from psychologists called duration neglect. And, and this is where people tend to forget how long things take. They remember particular moments. If you think about a trip to Disney as a really good example, you tend to remember the three, four kind of highlighty moments. You forget the two and a half hours you stood in a line. So that's the way we remember things, which is why this trip packs in. You know, if you think about, Peter, when, when you uh, crossed the Atacama Desert, and well done, by the way, that's cool. There are different ways to, to see these places. And if, and if you're the resource that is, and you probably went when you had more time than money. And so there are different ways to go to Latin America. One way is when you have more time and less money, and that is to, you know, take your time and go backpacking. And when the thing that you have is less time and more money, there's another way to go see it. And I don't think this trip is not designed to tick these places off. It's to, to have special moments with, I think the plane that you looked at, Gavin, takes, is it eight comfortably? It seats 10, but takes eight comfortably with yeah. people who are super close to you and creating memories. And we, 
One of the places that we go to is in the winelands of uh, Chile. And the hotel is this place called Vina Vic. It looks like something designed by Frank Gehry. It's, it's pretty spectacular. And the wines, of course, are fabulous. And it's designed specifically in terms of the time design, in terms of the itinerary design for the time where you just chill and take it easy. Very different. It's a different stage of the trip to Pucon. And Pucon, and we chose, again, we chose that hotel deliberately because you can land there in the helicopter. The hotel is within the national park. So you don't need to waste time going in and out of the national park. You're there. The view from your hotel room is of the volcano. So you get the magic, obviously the magical view, but you get this, as you get up there, there's the volcano. You get the anticipation that we're going to climb up. And Gavin, would you like to tell the story of where you climbed up that? Because I like hearing the story. So I, I thought, oh, this is just going to be a hike up a mountain. But it was obviously declared as a, an active volcano. And you can see this, the venting from the top of the volcano. But a three hour, three and a half hour hike up the top with a guide and maybe sort of 10 people. And there's a sort of like a chain of, of people climbing the mountain. And you go through a, a valley and you go left to right as you, as you climb up. And they didn't say anything about the volcano being dangerous. They just said it was live, active. Okay. So halfway up, you know, you're really tired. You're really sort of getting into the groove. And I just happened to look up at the volcano and just sort of see the venting. And as I did, I witnessed half of the, the, the wall of the volcano collapse. And as it started collapsing, I shouted, boulders, boulders. And the guide looked around to me and he was in horror. And he just said, everyone to the side. And we, we had to literally rush to the size of this sort of small valley. And you could see these boulders cascading down the, the volcano. In particular, one of them was the size of a car and another one was the size of a fridge. And the size of the car boulder just sort of came at me and it landed probably about uh, 200 meters away with a bit sort of splash of snow. The fridge size one continued to bounce like the bouncing bomb coming towards you. And I was off to the side and it landed about 100 meters away and just with a big splash. You could see all the way up the volcano, the 200 people or so that were climbing, all rushing off to the side and everyone survived. But it was a spectacular event. And we didn't have GoPros in those days. We just had cameras that we had stashed away because we were climbing and sort of ice picks. And that was, I was just a tourist climbing a mountain and I almost died. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that, that reaches a, a large tick on your checklist then, James. Oh, absolutely. The eye of stories is about intensity, which is about flow, which is about being in the moment. It's, it's the sort of thing that you get when you're skiing down a hill and you may or may not fall over. It's the feeling you get when you're playing tennis with someone and you're, and you're it can be the feeling you get when you're really enjoying a wine. And, you know, you can get it from sensory things as well, but you need to be engrossed in the moment when you're doing something that's difficult. And so there are stages to the flow. The neuroscience of flow is very interesting. And so the first thing you need is some kind of struggle, something that's challenging, something that pulls you in, which is why it's hard to get flow from a lot of daily life, because a lot of daily life in the modern world is designed to be super simple and easy for us. So it's important when you're designing any kind of time that you spend or a, a travel itinerary that you build into it something that's challenging. Too many people think, oh, we'll get away. Oh, we'll go and sit on the beach or we'll just sit and do. And I think more and more of us are realizing that A, you get no story from that. And B, you think about deadlines and you think about the work that you haven't done and you think about all those things. But when you're in the moment and boulders the size of fridges and boulders the size of cars, or even you're just hiking up a hill and it's challenging, you know, a big, sorry, a mountain, and it's challenging for you, 
that's great to get you into flow. And flow is crucial, not just for happiness in the moment, but actually, this is interesting, I think, for curiosity and creativity. I talked to a fantastic guy the other day in Colorado who was sharing with me that there's a difference between hedonic and eudaimonic happiness. Hedonic is the hedonism you get from you know drinking or whatever. Research shows that a few drinks do make us happier, but of course, the research also shows that you don't feel so good the next day, but whatever. But eudaimonia is an di- idea from a guy called Aristotle, from the philosopher. You is good. The daimon is your spirit. And to get to it's kind of lots of modern psychologists will talk about enduring happiness, the long-term happiness. The way to get to enduring happiness is through things that are quite challenging that are quite ultimately satisfying, but often hard at the time, hard in the moment. This is about life satisfaction. But interestingly, and this is why more governments should get interested in this as well, is hedonic happiness reduces our curiosity and creativity. Eudaimonic happiness, like some of the things we've designed into this trip, increases your creativity and curiosity. So if you're kind of person who wants to get more from life, and be better at what you do. And I think a lot of people, so this idea of a functional alibi has, has also been shown by people at, I think it's researchers at Harvard and maybe maybe University of British Columbia in the States. Functional alibi can be really useful for people. Too many of us work too hard nowadays. But when you know that your time off is going to make you better in the thing that you do, the thing that makes life work, that makes you a good parent, makes you good at your work, and frankly, good at life, you should choose the kind of experiences that lead to eudaimonic happiness, the challenging stuff, walking up this volcano, for example. That brings me to the question of, can you tell us a bit about your philosophy and your stories checklist? Because I don't think we've gone through the whole, you know, what each letter stands for. Yeah, sorry, Felice. That's because I often wonder and forgive me uh, for doing that. Um, I'll try and keep it as brief as possible. It took me about three months to come up with the stories checklist. It sounds kind of glib, but I wanted to, like I say, I wanted to find out what the experts have discovered and put it into something that's handy for us, hence stories checklist. So the first S is for story. So story have a magic that connects us to other people and relationships make us happy. So all of the stories, they're all connected and they sort of support each other as well. So when you tell a story to somebody else, it's one of the reasons why experiences are best than material goods at making us happy. If someone says to you, can I tell you about my new sofa? Yeah. If someone says to you, can I tell you about my weekend? That's more interesting. Or, or they say, can I tell you about the time I went to Glastonbury and it rained for three days or the time I went to somewhere and something challenging happened or, oh, you know, I've got this problem at work that's challenging. That's interesting. It's the kind of story. There's a particular type of story that we should tell. It's the hero's journey. And the hero's journey is a, from a certain point of view, it follows the same shape as that neuroscience of flow. You need the challenge. You need something to kind of put you into a, this is this is challenging. This is difficult. I'm focusing here. And then things turn out okay in the end. And a great example is Cinderella. There's Cinderella. If she'd just been a girl who married a prince, there's no story. She needs for her mum to die, for her dad to remarry. She needs for her dad to die. So she's stuck with the awful stepmother. She needs to be the whole girl locked in the cupboard. And then she meets the prince, etc. And it's the same with Star Wars. It's the same with the story of Moan, it's that movie 1917. But it's also the stories that we like to hear. The great leaders not just of our age, but of any age, tell stories that go like this. Things are tough now, but come with me and we'll make it to the promised land. Things will get better, but we have to go through that challenge. And so therefore, when you think about the time that you design for yourself, don't fool yourself that sitting on a sun lounger is fun. Don't fool yourself that you should have a great weekend. Don't just think, let's have a pleasant time. 
go through those challenges and build that into your time and realize that that's where the gold of life is. That will make you feel alive, fully alive, and it will give you stories to tell other people that will give you, make you happier. And then briefly to run through the other parts of stories. Okay. T is transformation, which is about change, development, growth, and super important to be happy. O is outside and offline. Put your phone down, be in the moment. You know, the more time you spend online is the more time you're not spending with other people. And the data is very clear on this. R is relationships. The Harvard Adult Development Study, which has been running since 1939, one of the longest longitudinal studies that there is, shows very clearly the people that have the connections, the relationships are the people who live longest and they have the best time. So we are a hyper-social species. The I is intensity. Intensity is about flow. It's about being in the moment. It's about trying to do a good job. It's trying to stay on your feet when you're skiing. It's trying not for your boat to fall over when you're sailing. It's to climb a mountain, not get hit by boulders. The E is for extraordinary. Extraordinary. There's a, there's a weird one here. Ordinary moments make us really happy too. You think of the joy, and I am very English here, of a nice cup of tea. You know, when you're traveling and you're in the States or in France and they bring you the tea and they've got the tea bag on the side. And you're like, no, no, no. You put it in when the water's hot. Not now. You know, though, you know that that the fright, but that's okay because when you come home, you have a proper cup of tea. So ordinary things make us happy, but so do extraordinary things. And I think of this, I hope you'll you'll excuse this, but it's almost like the night sky. You need the dark to see the stars. For Christmas Day to work, you need to the other days to not be Christmas Day. You can think of Chiaro, Chiaroscuro, the painting. You need the dark with the light. So you need the ordinary and enjoy that. And then the extraordinary create these moments in life that we remember. So therefore design your itinerary, design your time away where you have those moments. And one of the wonderful things this does for people is when you're confronted with, oh, that's a bit expensive. I'm not sure if we should do this. It gives you an excuse. Don't save it so you can buy that stuff you don't need. You've got enough clothes. Spend it on the experience. I've used this myself. I had a woman who contacted me on Facebook who said that she always goes to the same place every year. But having read time and how to spend it, she did a couple of things with her teenage kids. And of course, we all know how hard they are to entertain. And because they went for it, it turned into the best summer and they remember it specifically. And the final S is status and significance. And this is a slightly weird one because it's very awkward for people, but more status makes you live longer. You get a, a more attractive partner. People laugh at your jokes more, but you live longer. It's like eating greens. It's really good for us. But status on its own could be very lonely. Super success when you don't bring other people with you is, is rubbish. Oprah Winfrey is a sterling example. And actually something to say sterling, like, like uh, Raheem Sterling, the footballer, you know, you, you bring other people. It's not about you. It's about us. And actually, let's come back to the hypersocial species, borrow from Aristotle. If you look at his, the Nicomachean ethics, which was put down what, uh, about 1500 years ago, 14, 1500 years ago now, when you want to be happy, you need to give to others. You can see this in the, in the work on um, kindness, but this is where significance is really important. And we built this into this trip because there's a meeting that we, we don't know where it will happen because it needs to work around the Tompkins Foundation. So the woman who runs it, formerly the CEO of Patagonia, and the idea is we'll get a chance to meet her, to appreciate this wonderful part of the world and have an opportunity to contribute. Contribution makes us really happy and we feel part of something. We live longer from it. So if you bring this story stuff together and you use it in your daily life, in your work life, in your leisure time and in your trips, you can't help but increase. It's not, you know, there's no silver bullet, but increase your chances of being happy, better relationships, better stories, better memories and being more resilient. So, Gavin, having survived the boulders and then we move on from there. 
Where would you go next? Where would we possibly fly from there? So we thought, well, where do we go next? And obviously, Ushuaia, which is where we got the, the journey to the end of the world uh, from. That's what it's called. It's called end of the world. And so we thought we'll go down to there. And from Temuco is in Chile. And obviously, Ushuaia is Argentina. So there are no direct flights again between those two towns. So using the private jet allows us to, again, decide what time we want to go. And more importantly, what time we want to arrive. And by flying down the Andes with the Andes off of the port window, we can depart so that we arrive just before sunset. And so the sun is setting off our right-hand wing and we're looking out of the port window at the Andes with the setting sun sort of literally just lighting them up. And then we do that all the way down to about uh, two hours or so down to Ushuaia. And as we land in Ushuaia, the sun is just setting over the right-hand side. And then we spend a few days in Ushuaia. Now, I've got to ask you something, Gavin, about the environment and flying, because obviously flying doesn't have a very good reputation. Yes, well, uh, we we do cover that. Uh, As a company, we have a carbon offsetting scheme. At the moment, unfortunately, there is no solution for cars to electric and hydrogen aircraft. They are stuck with fossil fuels at the moment. Uh, Sustainability will come in, so there will be sustainable fuels that are being developed, and they are being used in commercial aircraft uh, as tests at the moment. So eventually, it will improve. And uh, we don't know whether in the future aircraft will be electric, hydrogen or something else. Um, It might be that it's sustainable fuel for a while before moving to the next step. So our clients are able to offset that carbon and we have an offset scheme, which is a percentage of the the total price. And those those carbon credits go against uh, various schemes that we we deem uh, important. It's a way of acknowledging that uh, private aviation is not uh, necessarily the greenest thing to do. So where do we go from Ushuaia? Okay, so after Ushuaia, we spend, a, a, again, a little bit of time in Ushuaia. And uh, I believe it was just one night um, because, again, it's it's being there, which is the exciting thing. And we do a few things there. After that, we decided that we wanted, if we could, to take in the Perito Marina Glacier. But we couldn't really fly direct to the Perito Marina Glacier in El Calafate because uh, we are using a Chilean aircraft and we couldn't fly domestically in, in Argentina. So we thought, okay, let's take it to... The the uh, Torre de Pine National Park. Um, so we fly to Puerto Natales. And uh, again, that's a very short, quick flight and uh, not easily done commercially. There was talk of maybe doing Puma tracking. So, you know, you go out into the wilderness and you, you, you're looking for this elusive creature that is in that region. But that's sort of four or five days and not everyone has that time. So we just went for the traditional Torres de, National, um, Torres de Pine National Park uh, experiences. And from then, we then head back up to Santiago. But interestingly, we're able to take in the Perito Moreno Glacier just in the same day we're traveling up to Santiago. So we cross the border by jet into El Calafate in Argentina, off the jet, transfer to Perito Moreno Glacier, see that fantastic sight for three or four hours, return back to the aircraft, and then we continue on to Santiago, arriving there uh, in the early evening. And is that the end of the trip? Then we are in Santiago and we go down to Vinovic, which James mentioned earlier, uh, which is the sort of the reflection part of, of this, this whole journey. So we are looking at Vinovic as, as a sort of reflection, but also as uh, a, a way of bringing us back to where we started from, but not quite, because then, James, maybe you want to explain the, the, the part after Vinovic when we head off to the salt flats and the reason behind using the salt flats? We designed the salt flats 
if we go back to the idea of the B rules and the importance of extraordinary and the importance of beginnings and endings. So it's worth pointing out that we we played with this a lot because we wanted to make sure the ending was special, but it was also felt different to the other parts. So if we think about the, the hero's journey and the idea of you go up and something's challenging, then you come down the other side. It was very important that this was had a different energy feel to it. You know, this isn't climbing a volcano whilst it's also spectacular. I mean, it really is. So the salt flats there are, Peter, you possibly been i um, haven't but please you have I, i've ah. been to argentina to the salt flats which are very close to the border with bolivia so okay almost the same mm. yeah spectacular views wonderful pictures it feels like it goes on forever the sky and the, everything looking and also also some astro tourism as well so we were very conscious of the fact that this would be a spectacular ending the places we've got to set up to stay would be in these geodesic domes or in one of those wonderful uh, aluminium like trailers, either yes. an Airstream or geodesic dome, depending on what the people preferred. We also looked at a salt hotel, but quite frankly, that's more gimmicky than the other two. <laughs> and so you'd have something that was absolutely spectacular as your final kind of landing place and your last thing that you did on the trip that would be super memorable to make sure this really stays in your mind. But at the same time, there's a reference to San Pedro to Atacama. So there's a framing here as well. And if you think about great movies and great stories, it's really nice to have kind of the beginning and the end have a certain kind of frame to them as well. So it would bring people back to where they began. So they start to think about themselves and how they've changed. Because then when we fly back in to Santiago de Chile for the final bit, we would meet with the same person again. And either go to the same restaurant or another rooftop restaurant with a view yet again of the Andes to reflect on the whole trip again, reflect on themselves about what they've seen and what they've done and how they've changed, bringing them to the same kind of place. And there's an element here, and I hope you'll, you'll, you'll see this, of this beginnings and the endings are also, in terms of the structure of a story, as you cross the threshold from the old world, the normal world, into the world of the adventure, and then you cross back again. And you can see this as just sort of one step, or you can see this as steps. I went to an experience very well designed recently at the Royal Opera House, where they designed different little steps into the experience so that when you arrive, of course, you've got the noise and the bustle of London and the rain, and but you need to be in the experience. And we've designed this trip deliberately to take people away from normal life and in. So we arrive in, you know, in the capital, in Santiago, and we have this, this opportunity to kind of think about what we're going to do, set the story up. Then, and of course, we're traveling by private jet. So each moment, you're going to have a chance to reflect through. And then we arrive in San Pedro de Atacama. And again, we're crossing into the adventure. And on the way back, we're doing this through steps as well, enabling the person to really be in the adventure, appreciate the adventure for what it is, and then come through the other side and reflect on the transformation that's happened within them. So, Gavin, presumably none of this would be possible going by a scheduled airline. Well, it would take many hundreds of hours. We worked out that uh, doing this by private jet is 23 hours of flying. Looking at the commercial options, if indeed you would actually take a commercial flight between some of the cities, most of it you would probably just do a 24-hour overground. Um, but it's 163 hours by commercial. That's not taking in the, the stopovers, the connections, the multiple flights, the border crossings. And of course, at the moment, you want to avoid as many border crossings as possible by commercial because of the delays getting through the borders themselves. I mean, at the end here, we're talking about the salt flats in, uh, in Bolivia. Uh, we fly from Santiago directly into uh, Uni. 
which is uh, right on the salt flats. Now, commercially, you can't fly between those two cities. You have to go via La Paz or you have to go via Santa, Santa Cruz. And the schedules just don't quite add up. So therefore, if you want to go just for a few days, you might have to stay a week because you can't fly in and fly out two days later. And you've got to fly via these two airports and you've got to stay overnight. So that and alone it's slip, isn't it it's just a slip of doing it. it it's fun if you're a backpacker and you're part of this part of the experience and you get on a 12-hour coach journey and then you have to go by you want to do We've that all been on those trips they were it, fun right they, they're really they, fun when you've got the time yeah, i think this that's is right the thing about- yeah no yeah so at the end of all that james you've got a story you're you're you feel a hero and you've got something that's enriching your life and enhancing your life, changing your life in every possible way. You said you got something to tell people at the dinner table when you get back home. Uh, I think you've, and you've got something that tells you who you, I would agree, tells you who you are. I think it's worth pointing out. And I think Gavin brought it up really well there. You know, I love, I've been on the 36 hour train journey across <laughs> India. There's a time and a place in your life to do those things. If the resource that you are poor in is money, then do the 24 hour coach trip because it's all so fun and a great experience and horrific and amazing. And, you know, you get a story. If the resource that is your challenge is time and you have the resources to go by private aviation, that's the choice to make. And I think this is one of the, for me, a really interesting t- statistic from these guys at ACS, that only 10% of people who can afford to fly by private aviation do so. And that to me, obviously my work in time and how to spend it, there's a new book that's just come out called Time and How to Use It. The thing that bothered us in the 2010s, and rightly so, was are we spending our money correctly? Because of COVID, this has turned up the volume on on where we are in terms of the evolution of our culture. But we live in a, a wealthy country. And the thing that we can't get more of, you can always go get more money, but you can't get more time. We have our 40,000 weeks. We need to get the most from it. So if that's your resource that's tight and you've got the money, you should treat yourself to the experiences that there are in the world. I'm not the third richest man in the world, but I wouldn't mind a bit more time as well. Me too. <laughs> but we can't, you know, you can exercise, you can eat green vegetables and you should exercise and you should eat green vegetables and you can stretch a bit. But the key is, but you know, it's what you do with your time matters, right? If you live a, a shorter life, but you do something, I don't want to quote Mussolini with his, you know, better to live, um, what is it? A day is a lion than a hundred years as a sheep. That I don't agree with that, but you should approach your existence because it's short and it's precious as how can I get the most out of this? I want to have fun here. This is my go. How we spend our time and especially COVID has made us go, well, it's a bit like being in a sort of very fancy prison. And, but when you come out, we're like, wow, I want to, you think about what a prisoner does on their first day out. They go out for dinner. They see their friends. They do something that's meaningful. And I think we've got millions of people who are, and you see it in the data as well, who are itching to get out, to go see, to go do. James and Gavin, thank you very much indeed for appearing on the show. And if you've got a spare seat or two seats, (laughs) you're welcome to join. How do people book? How do people book? Well, you go to our website, which is aircharterservice.com and uh, all of the information on whatever aircraft you want to charter, whatever part of the world is available through our website. And James, if people want to buy your books or find out more about you, do you have a website? JamesWalman.com. I run something called the World Experience Organization, which is worldxo.org, which is about experiences and the experience economy. But the simplest thing is to, to buy the book in your local bookstore or on Amazon, Stuffocation and Time and How to Spend It in order to spend better time. But if you even look up actually on the um, Air Charter Service website, you'll get a sense of the ideas from looking at this itinerary. We wish you the very best of luck with it. 
So there you have it. Journey to the End of the World is the first of a series of ultimate holidays designed by Air Charter Service in its Time Well Spent series. The cost? Well, there are so many variable factors on the trip, but the starting point is around $50,000 per person. That's all for now. If you've enjoyed the show, please visit our website, actionpacktravel.com, or you can subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or any of the many podcast platforms. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd love you to sign up for our regular emails too at peter at actionpacktravel.com. Until next week, stay safe. Just a crazy storm